Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Well, a very good evening to you. Welcome to a special 2006 start to The Naked Scientists with me, Dr Chris Smith, and with Dr Katani. Hello! I hope you had a very nice Christmas. Now, tonight's show, Food for Thought. We have a gut-busting, flab-fighting, well overindulging combating program for you this evening because we're going to be talking about the science of appetite the science of metabolism how our body controls how much food we eat and what it does with it and how to lose weight if you have put on too much why do some people manage to stay slim despite eating all kinds of rubbish and why do others seem to be perpetually fighting the battle of the expanding waistline well here to help us do that tonight we have from Cambridge University, Professor Steve O'Reilly. Good evening, Steve. Good evening. And from Loughborough University, Professor Len Armand. Good evening, Len. Good evening. Hello. If you'd like to ask either of those two individuals any questions about how exercise can make a difference to your general health, how exercise can help you to lose weight, or how your metabolic rate is affected by what you eat, anything like that, get calling now. 08459 is the phone number. Or you can send us an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. And as usual, we'll of course be starting the programme with our more general science questions. So if you have anything that's been toying with your imagination or preying on your mind over Christmas, we'll answer it for you. 08459 25000. And here's Dr Cat with a rundown of what else to look forward to tonight. Yeah, we've got loads of stuff tonight. We have some uh, news from the world of science. Chris is going to be telling us why Tyrannosaurus Rex wouldn't be able to hear you scream as it ate you alive. And uh, I'll be bringing you some scandal from the world of stem cell research but also some good news too. Now, if you phone in for our quiz, Science Fact or Science Fiction, we have some great prizes tonight. You can win a back-friendly backpack stuffed with all sorts of science-related goodies and also a family ticket for the IMAX cinema down in London. Now, this is the huge screen, three-dimensional cinema. I've been there. It's amazing. You can win a family ticket for that and uh, a back-friendly backpack. In our quiz, Science Fact or Science Fiction, it's very simple. You phone up 08459 25000. Uh, we ask you questions, you tell if us if they're science fact or if they're science, we just made it up on the spot. And uh, you can win these great prizes. So get calling in now, uh, 08459 25 2000, get calling in. And of course, if you have any general science questions about anything, you can email me to chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Now, as is usual with The Naked Scientist, we ask you to join in with the fun of science and do an experiment at home during the programme. It's our kitchen science uh, component. And if you are the first person through on the telephones with the correct observation, and you can have a go at interpreting what you see as well, and if you get it right and you're the first, there's a prize there for you. We've got some fabulous prizes. You've heard about them in the introduction. I won't uh, bore you with them all over again. But if you were the first through on the phones with the correct answer to tonight's experiment, then there's one of those prizes coming your way. So what is it? Well, what you're going to need this evening is some cream. It's as simple as that. You've probably got loads of it left over from Christmas, but you're going to need some cream, and you're going to need a way way of whipping it up. But, now don't be fooled, because when uh, Derek and Dave tell you how to do this in just a second, then don't think that it's just a case of whipping it until it does what most cream does. You've got to go that extra mile and whip it just a bit harder. Let's catch up with Derek and Dave, who are with Nathan and Michelle in their kitchen in Lakenham. Good evening, Derek. Yes, hello, Chris. We are in uh, Lakenham in Norwich this week, and uh, we're here in the kitchen where we're going to be doing some fantastic science experiments which you can do at home, so keep listening. And with me is my naked science colleague, Dave. Good evening, Dave. Good evening, Derek. And what have we got lined up today? Well, this evening we're going to be messing around with an edible version of paint. And uh, with us also we have two uh, very willing helpers who are going to be doing some of the work for us, I think. Uh, So guys, could you uh, tell us who you are? 
Hello, my name's Nathan. I'm 11. Fantastic. And, uh, and yourself? Hello, I'm Michelle and I'm 11 as well. And guys, what's your, what's your favourite part of science? Well, my favourite part of science has to be the explosions. When everything goes kaboom. Excellent. And, and yourself, Michelle? Mine is also experiments. I like them when they go bang because it makes a mess everywhere. Oh, fantastic. OK, are we going to be satisfying and making any mess today, do you think? Should be able to make a mess, maybe not an explosion, though. OK, well, today then, you at home can also do this experiment, and uh, we'd very much like you to do it. It's going to be exciting, and it's going to be very easy as well. What you need is uh, some double cream, firstly. Uh, we, we suggest you have about a quarter pint of it, or uh, 150 millilitres, something like that. And also, you can have either a big bowl and a whisk, or an empty, clean jam jar, or some kind of container that you can see very well, which is very good for not making a mess. So, Dave, what are we going to be doing then? Well, this is very easy, very simple to do. Quite hard work, very simple to do. Okay, there's two ways of doing this. There's an easy way and the hardcore way. So we'll start off with the easy way. Take a jar or some kind of sealed container, okay? Pour in about a quarter of a pint of double cream. Do you want to do that for me, Michelle? You okay, can do that. Which one of you two is going for the hardcore method? Not me. Okay, so it looks like Michelle. So this Okay, so Nathan has decided to go for the easy way. Um, Michelle is currently pouring the double cream into the clean jar. Very neatly done, I'm impressed. Great stuff, thank you very much, Michelle. Okay, now if you'd like to take the lid and jam it on really tight. Really tight. Now, all you're going to have to do, once that lid's on, is shake it. And keep shaking it and see what happens. Okay, we'll give that to Nathan and Nathan can do that one. Okay, now for the slightly more difficult way of doing it, very similar, is we just take a mixing bowl, add the same cream to it, and now if you take a whisk and then whisk away. Now this is quite hard work, it's going to take at least 10 or 15 minutes of hard whisking. And, uh, and Nathan's working away there, how are you finding that? Love it. Love it, oh great, okay, is really, it hard work? Really yeah. Okay. Yeah, hurt your arms. Yeah, hurt his arms, okay, he's going to build up his muscles. Um, so, um, we've got uh, Michelle who's uh, mixing away at the, at the cream there. Really whisk it. And uh, Nathan, who's doing the, the less hardcore method. So I think, you know, Michelle earns more respect, basically. How are you finding that, Michelle? Fine. And what are we going to do, Dave, then? Um, we'll just keep, keep whisking and see what happens to the cream, and we'll find out what happens later. It's going like ice cream. Keep going. I said it was hard work. Yeah, Why do you always have to get the easy way? <laughs> Look, this is hard. Do you want to trade? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. OK, then. Well, guys, you at home can also do this experiment. Remember, it's very easy and it's got a really cool result as well. So all you need to do is get some double cream and you can either shake it up in a jam jar or whisk it up in a bowl. And we want you to tell us what happens. And uh, to do that, you can call in. Uh, you can call the number 08459 252000 or you can email us at uh, chris at com. And uh, we'd really like to know what's happening in your kitchen. And remember, if you don't have the things, why not go over to your neighbour and find out if they can lend you a bowl and a whisk or whatever whoever can actually call in with the right result will give them a prize basically so uh that would be great okay we're going to come back in about half an hour to lakenham in norfolk to find out what's been going on in the kitchen and uh, we'll see you then chris okay bye bye thank you derek dave nathan and michelle who are in the kitchen in lakenham at the moment whipping cream if you want to have a go grab some cream and whip it up like crazy and you don't just whip it till it goes stiff you've got to keep going to see the observation that we're after and then maybe you can have a little think about why you see what it is that you see. If you think you know the answer, 08459 25 2000 or email me chris at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, what would happen if Tyrannosaurus Rex ate you? 
I think you'd probably wince a bit. Well, the key question we're looking at here is, would Tyrannosaurus Rex have heard you screaming your head off as he consumed you? Has he got ears? Well, your dinosaurs do have ears because we, we, know, we know that they have ears because they're related to birds and birds have ears. They have very good hearing, actually. And dinosaurs are their closest relative that we know about. So, yeah, they could have heard. And also dinosaurs used sounds themselves. The Parasaurolophus was that dinosaur that had those funny stems sticking up from the top of his head and he could blow air through them rather like an organ and make noises. And so we know that dinosaurs use sounds, they responded to sounds, but how much could they hear? And could Tyrannosaurus Rex have heard, have heard you as he munched his way through you, screaming your head off? And the answer is actually no. He wouldn't have had to have you troubling him as he ate you for dinner, <laughs> uh, as you kind of protested about being eaten, because he wouldn't have been able to hear that kind of frequency. Because a human scream is between 3,000 upwards uh, hertz. Three, three kilohertz in, of noise frequency. And there's a scientist in Germany, and his name is Otto Gleick, and he's working at the University of Regensburg. And because birds are such close relatives of dinosaurs, and we know that as birds get bigger, the length of a particular structure in their ear, which is called the basilar papilla, which is the hearing structure, that gets longer. And as it gets longer, it becomes less sensitive to, sh to smaller, to higher and higher frequencies. So in other words, as you scream it wouldn't be able to hear you if, it, if it's long enough. So he's gone to some fossil dinosaurs because this, this cochlear duct that contains the basilar papilla is well preserved in these fossils and he's measured it in Archaeopteryx, which is a fossilised dinosaur bird, very, very close relative of birds in the dinosaur age, and it's about the same as modern-day birds. Then he looked at an Allosaurus, which is about one and a half tonnes, and that Allosaurus has a, has a duct which would have meant that he could hear between 1.1 and 1.3 kilohertz of sound. So... He, well, sorry, up to three kilohertz in sound. So he just about, if he ate you, be able to hear you screaming. But a big brachiosaur, he can only hear between 700 hertz and 2.4 kilohertz. And the scream's obviously kicking in at three. So a tyrannosaur's about halfway between the allosaur and the brachiosaur. So the chances are that Tyrannosaurus rex would not have been unduly troubled by your screams as he munched his way through you for dinner. He would, however, have been able to hear the sound of his stomach rumbling. <laughs> would it work if you sort of very gruffly went, Oi, stop eating me? <laughs> that, you could probably hear that, couldn't you? Anyway, I'm, I'm going to bring you a, a little bit of scandal from the world of science. Now, uh, the way that scientists work out what, what they do is right or not is because it's all checked by other scientists in the world. There's a system of peer review uh, for publications. And so scientists will check out other scientists' work, and generally we know that things are correct. And uh, last year there was a big news story when this guy in Korea, Wu Suk Hwang, said that he had managed to clone human embryonic stem cells. So he took human eggs and basically cloned them and made embryonic stem cells from them. Now this is a breakthrough because it meant that you could use the embryonic stem cells to heal people specifically um, by replacing cells in the person they'd been cloned from so you wouldn't have rejection problems. But now, just over Christmas, his results have actually been shown to be phony. So he was faking it all. These weren't really stem cell lines that were cloned. And they worked this out by genetic fingerprinting the cells that he'd got. Um, so it's all, all a bit of a scandal, really. And it looks like so far that the prize for cloning human embryonic stem cells is still up for grabs. But it's not all bad news in the world of stem cells because uh, also some scientists in America have discovered a way to grow stem cells using no animal products. Now, currently, if you grow stem cells, you have to have sort of 
bits of mashed up cow and things in there because those are the proteins the cells need. But they've worked out a way of growing the cells using no animal products at all. So there's no risk of allergy to animal molecules. And also there's no risk of transferring animal viruses into these stem cells. So, you know, it may be one step backwards for stem cell research in that we can't clone them yet. But in terms of being able to grow them, it's It's kind of assuming, though, Kat, that the stem cells don't already have any infectious things already in them because then you're just growing what's already there. But... Well, that's true, but the more that we can... If you can actually make stem cells from human um, embryos, which is where you get them from, without using any animal products at all along the way, you're much more likely to keep them nice and clean and then to be able to use them in practice to repair things. Quick question from Rose, who's in Peterborough. Good evening, Rose. Hi. What's your question? Um, it is, is... Does laughing gas really make you laugh or not? I'm laughing already, I haven't even had any. Um, Yes, Rose, the answer is it kind of does. Laughing gas is nitrous oxide. N2O is the chemical formula for it. And it does act as a sort of anaesthetic-like agent. It it makes your brain feel a bit woozy in almost the same way as alcohol does. And so as a result, if you take some laughing gas, you feel a little bit drunk and a little bit cheerful. And if you give enough of it, you start to feel a little bit sleepy. But it's very good at uh, pain-killing, actually. And if you're having an operation, it's sometimes used with other anaesthetics to, to kill pain and make you more comfortable. I was wondering, Chris, actually, can you have too much laughing gas? Is it harmful? Because I was at a music festival this summer and there were people inhaling laughing gas from balloons. No, that's not laughing gas, it. that's helium. No, 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 it was, it was nitrous oxide. Um, people were selling it, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> using it as a as a drug. I mean, is, is um, that dangerous? Uh, as far as we know, there's a, there is a subset of people in the population that have a particular form of a gene which which actually makes uh, it's involved in making new blood cells. And if they have that that subset of that gene, and you have laughing gas, then you it can actually affect your bone marrow in the long term. Ooh. It can actually make your bone marrow work a little bit less well. But luckily, it, it's only temporary. But So it can be a bit toxic. I, I don't think I'd be inhaling tubes of laughing gas. But yeah, that, just that, say no, kids. No, just say no. What do you think, Steve? I think it's probably illegal. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that as well. But usually things that are fun have to be, <laughs> don't they? Rose, does that answer your question? Yeah. Have you ever had laughing gas? I'd say not, probably. No, but my sister had. And it has hardly, she? Yeah, it hardly made her sick. It, well, it hardly made her laugh. It, it made her more sick. Than made her sick? What, was she having it because she'd broken a bone or something? Um... Or she dislocated a joint or something like that. I think she'd broken her leg. Because mm, it's normally reserved for when people mm. have something quite serious yeah. to go wrong with them. Mm. Do you want to have a quick go at the quiz, Rose? Yes, please. All right, then. A group of kangaroos is called a bump. Is that fact or fiction? Um, is it fact? No, uh, a group of kangaroos is actually called a mob. <laughs> Rather surprisingly. Next question, Rose. A baby hair is called a leveret. Do you think that's fact or fiction? It's fact. You know that? You sound confident on that one. You sure? Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah, baby hairs, they're leverets. And the next one, Rose, the coldest planet in the solar system is called Titan. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fiction. Absolutely right. We can't put anything past you tonight. Titan's not a planet at all. It's actually Saturn's largest moon, whereas Pluto, which is six billion kilometres from the sun, is the coldest planet in the solar system. So that's two out of three, I think. Well done, Rose. Two out of three, doing very well. Thanks for your call, all right? Right. See ya. Bye. Rose, who is in Peterborough. If you'd like to get a question into The Naked Scientist, Dr Cat, Dr Chris, we're here with you until seven, talking this evening in, about general science to start with, and then very shortly we're going to be hearing about the stem cell that scientists have discovered that makes breasts, and also how your brain 
can actually be programmed to like certain things. We'll be talking to John O'Doherty very shortly in California about that. And our other major topic for discussion this evening is that we'll be talking to Steve O'Reilly, who's here in the studio with us, and Len Armand about exercise and diet and weight gain and metabolism and how you control all of those things and why it is that some people, when they get a little bit uh, overindulgent towards Christmas time, tend to put on a bit too much weight round their middle. Why does that happen and how can we combat it? If you've got any questions about that, 08459 25 is our phone number or you can send me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. Well, we're always looking forward to getting your emails from around the world. And uh, we have some more exotic locations where people have written to us from. We have an email here from Kiel Bothner, I think. I hope that's right, in Norway. And um, oh, I'm not sure if it's a he or a she, but they say um, she was very pleased to get a iPod for Christmas this year. And uh, she's found out about the Naked Scientists and listens online at our podcasts, which are available at www.nakedscientist.com. And she said, you evoked my curiosity and I visited the pages as soon as I could and had my PC up and running. And she's really pleased with the diversity of the show and as far as she can judge, the quality of the content. And uh, she says, congratulations, keep up the good work. I really hope you're a she, Kiel. So that's Kiel from Norway. Probably listened to a show that I wasn't on. (laughs) Yeah, the one that I did. (laughs) It is the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Kat. We're here with you until seven this evening, taking your questions live to the programme, 08459 is our phone number, or it's Chris at if you want to send us an email. Don't forget, we have our kitchen science experiment. Derek and Dave are with Nathan and Michelle in that kitchen in Lakenham this evening, whipping up cream. Get some cream, whip it together, either in a jar or with a, with a whirly mixer, and don't stop when it does what you expect it to do. Keep going. What's the observation, what's the finding, and what's the explanation? There's a prize in it if you're the first person through on the phone with, to tell us what happens. 08459 25 I have a quick uh, email here from Alison, who's in New Jersey, if an email can be quick. She says, uh, my question is about blood. In my medical terminology class, we were taught that you can distinguish an old internal bleed from a relatively fresh one by the colour of the blood. A fresh bleed produces bright red blood, but an old bleed produces a brownish blood, if, if, uh, if not a brown period, she says. Um, I was curious as to what makes the blood turn brown. Steve, what do you think about that one? Any, well, any ideas? Well, I think initially the bright red is due to the oxygen in the haemoglobin, so you get the colour of the bright red colour of the oxygen haemoglobin, and then if it's sitting around, it loses its oxygen and becomes purplish. But after that, the body tends to metabolise the blood products into, into more red and green pigments, uh, and then you can sort of tell the, the timing of bleeding, bruising, etc., from that combination of, of p- pigments. Uh, that's I couldn't really have idea. said it, put it better myself, Alison, but I will add one thing, and that is that haemoglobin, which is the stuff that makes your red blood cells red and that carries the oxygen that Steve was referring to, that's actually made of four rings joined together, a bit like a sort of clover leaf, but a four-leaf clover, obviously. And when you first bleed, you just get that stuff in your bleed. But then, very quickly, cells move in and they start attacking that molecule and they break it open into a long chain of these rings so they're all connected together instead of rounded up in a circle. And that's a molecule called bilirubin. And 
It's an, another molecule related to it called biliverdin, and they're coloured. Biliverdin is a nice green colour, and bilirubin is a brown-yellow colour. And in fact, too much bilirubin is what makes your skin go yellow, and you get jaundice. And so all these things happen just in the site of your bruise or your bleed, and that's why your bruise changes colour, and it goes starts off a reddy colour, then it goes a dark browny-black colour, and then a greeny-purpley colour, and eventually a sort of yellow colour which oozes away and it spreads out down your leg. And if you have a big bleed high up on your leg, then you'll find that the this, this sort of bruise spreads and changes colour as it goes down your leg. It's quite pretty, really. But anyway, there's your answer, Alison. Uh, if you have a question like that, 08459 It's Dr Chris and Dr Kat as the Naked Scientists on BBC Local Radio all around the eastern counties. Coming up very shortly, we'll be talking to Professor Steve O'Reilly, who you heard just there, about appetite and weight gain and how we control our metabolic rate. And we have Len Armand from Loughborough University who's going to talk about why exercise is really good for you. But before that... We need, to, we need to talk to two important individuals this week who have made a very important discovery, and they've published it in the journal Nature. Their names are Jane Visvader and Connie Eves. Jane Visvader is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne, and Connie Eves is at the British Columbia Cancer Agency in Vancouver. And why I'm telling you all this is that these two people have independently discovered the breast stem cell. And why this is important is that if you take that cell and put it to the right place elsewhere in the body, it can make an entirely new breast. And you think, well, that must have very important cosmetic implications because if you needed to have a new breast for some reason, so you've lost one for, for various disease processes, that could be very handy. But actually, this stem cell may also hold the key to controlling breast cancer because it's becoming increasingly clear that these stem cells play a major role in triggering cancers in the first place because they're so active, but also the chemotherapy that we use to treat cancers doesn't actually hit those cells very efficiently. So they're always loitering there, waiting to cause the, the recurrence of the disease. And so now we know how to track them down. We may actually be in a much better position to treat breast cancer properly. So first of all, let's talk to Jane Visvader, who is at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne, Australia. We've isolated and identified the breast stem cell and shown that a single cell when implanted into its correct environment, can in fact give rise to the entire ductal tree that typifies the breast tissue. How did you actually track the stem cell down? Uh, it was years of very hard work by two talented people in the lab, and they, by using a whole series of markers that are expressed on the cell surface, went through one by one and eventually found a population within breast tissue that expresses these specific markers. And, and by using these markers, they could actually isolate the cells. They could purify them. And they then implant these into a mouse model. It's the fat pad where the mammary gland, which is what we call the, the mouse breast, where that normally grows. And so they were implanted into the natural environment where a breast cell would grow. Jane Visvader from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne describing how the breast stem cell can give rise to all of the tissues found in the normal breast. But the findings also point to one way in which these stem cells could contribute to the formation of abnormal tissues within the breast too. In other words, cancers, as Connie Eves from the Terry Fox Laboratory at the British Columbia Cancer Agency in Vancouver explains... One of the most fascinating observations that is in our paper is that this cell is not what everybody thought would be the case. It is not lying there mostly asleep. It is a very actively dividing cell. But because they are dividing all the time, 
that means that they must be very prone to developing mutations, and some of those mutations by chance would be mutations that could give you a cancer. And so this may explain why the breast is a tissue where the development of cancer is very prevalent amongst women. Now, presumably, given that you've identified this cell, you can now look for any markers that distinguish it from other cells or give it its individuality. Yes, well, part of this paper is about the identification of certain adhesion molecules that are expressed at very high levels on these cells, more so than any other cells in the breast tissue, and that's what makes it possible for us to isolate these cells separate from all the other cells. The Columbia Cancer Agency's Connie Eaves describing how breast stem cells might contribute to the formation of breast cancers and how the unique molecular fingerprint that they express on their surfaces enables them to be singled out from other cells in the breast. But what are the implications of these findings for our future ability to treat breast cancers? Jane Visvader again. There is growing evidence that many cancers contain a very, very rare population of stem cells that actually drive tumour formation and they're very difficult to eradicate because they have different properties. And so many chemotherapies that are available now do not target these cells. So in the context of breast cancer, we've characterised the normal breast stem cell, which will share characteristics with this. And so our future studies will certainly go in the direction of trying to identify these cancer stem cells that exist in proportions of breast cancers. Jane Visvader from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne and Connie Eves, who is at the British Columbia Cancer Agency in Vancouver, with their momentous discovery this week of the breast stem cell. It's fascinating, the idea that you could actually grow some more breasts. So here's a, a joke for you, Chris, all right? Why is a woman's waist called a waist? I don't know. Go for it. Because you could get an extra pair of boobs in there. Do you know, I, I did hear a slightly naughty joke, which is how do you make a, a stone of fat look attractive? Since we're talking about fat and flab this evening, how do you make a stone of tra- a fat look attractive? Put it in a decal. I was going to say put it in a bra, yeah. <laughs> You're listening to The Naked Scientists on BBC Radio in the Eastern Counties. Get calling in with your appalling jokes and uh, any questions you've got for us about uh, anything to do with science, technology, medicine, or about um, being overweight, losing weight, exercise, your metabolism, 08459... 25,000. And uh, in fact, Jason Knight from Melbourne in Australia sent a rather nice pun, which was uh, the other day I got invited to two television aerials who were having a wedding. Uh, the wedding was nothing to write home about, but the reception was fantastic. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, of course. I'm Dr Chris, and also here this evening with me is Dr Kat Arney. We're here with you till seven. This evening we're talking... General science to start with, and then very shortly we'll be catching up with Steve O'Reilly and Len Armand, who will be talking to us about weight gain, how you lose weight, and how you actually control uh, what you eat and what you shouldn't eat, and how exercise can make you healthier. But right now, I'm going to tell you a story about a Russian scientist who, in history, took some dogs, fed them, and at the same time as he fed them, he sounded a bell, and all the dogs began to salivate. 
And of course, pretty soon, they were salivating only to the sound of the bell without being fed. And that guy's name was Pavlov, and he discovered how the brain very quickly can associate doing one thing with another thing occurring. Well, this week, John O'Doherty, who's in California now, but he was actually working at University College London until recently, has done a similar thing in humans and looked at what happens in a brain scanner. He joins us now. Hello, John. Hello, Chris. Thank you for agreeing to come on the programme. Tell us about your amazing study. So what we're interested in is, as uh, Pavlov was interested in back in the turn of the 20th century, is how do we learn to predict when good things are going to happen to us? And it's very advantageous to be able to predict when either good or bad things are going to happen to us because then we can prepare ourselves in advance and do the things that we need to do to get as much reward as we can. So what we were interested in is what parts of the brain are involved in this learning process. So we took uh, a bunch of uh, human uh, volunteers and we put them in a brain scanner, fMRI scanner, and what this scanner does is it, it can pick up uh, changes in blood oxygenation, which are indirectly related to neural activity. So we can actually see the bits of the brain that are being engaged during different types of uh, learning processes. And what we did with these subjects is that we presented them with uh, different uh, juice stimuli, so different flavors of juice, such as blackcurrant juice, uh, melon juice, grapefruit juice. And subjects tended to have a preference, so each of us probably have individual preferences for different types of juice. Some, one of us might like grapefruit more than melon, the other one might like uh, blackcurrant juice. And the subjects were in the scanner and they're getting little squirts of this juice. But as well as getting the juices, we also have these, had these arbitrary uh, pictures and we presented those in advance of when the subjects were getting the juices. And what happened over time is that subjects learned to associate the, uh, the juice stimuli, which they were getting, which they found variably pleasant, depending on their preferences, with the arbitrary stimuli. What we started to see in the brain is that there was a response that occurred to the uh, juice stimuli, which shifted back over time, over learning, and then eventually the subjects' brains were responding to the uh, predictive stimuli, to the cues, the visual cues. So in other words, you were showing them a picture, say a circle, and then giving them a squirt of grapefruit juice. Exactly. And in, after a very short time, when you were showing them a picture of a circle, even without the grapefruit juice, their brain was lighting up. Exactly. So in advance of that grapefruit juice happening, the brain was telling them something good is going to happen to you. And you said earlier it's very useful, obviously, so that we can learn how these things happen. Because yeah. for, for mankind as a whole, or any kind of animal, if, obviously if you can learn to associate cause and effect, then you're better at doing things in future. Now, exactly. was, the, was the size of the signals that you were getting, though, in the brain proportional to how much people actually liked the juice exactly. or disliked the juice? Exactly. So the more that they liked the juice, so if one person liked blackcurrant, juice more than the melon juice, then there was a stronger response to the blackcurrant juice. So what that's telling us is that you, when, you're, when you see a visual uh, cue or some sort of bit of information that's telling you you're going to get something nice, you can actually access the value that that stimulus has for you. So this means if you're Coca-Cola or Pepsi, because we don't want to be biased here on the BBC, uh, <laughs> and you've made people learn that, that seeing that word Coca-Cola written that way, white, red, mm. that kind of contrast, yeah. then they're going to get something they like. If you apply that branding to some other product, then in your brain there's going to be a sort of transfer of the, the sort of strength of how much you enjoyed that product before to the other products, presumably, exactly. then. Exactly. So what, that's exactly what people who want to market products like these, those drink brands you mentioned, uh, what they try to do in advertising is they try to associate uh, arbitrary uh, things like the brand logo 
with other nice things. So, for example, in advertising, you might uh, show a attractive face or some sort of nice environment or scenario and by learning the association between that brand and the, the thing that you find rewarding, the idea is the next time you come along and want to make a choice this information that you've learned should bias your decision. So you're more likely to choose the thing that's been associated with, with the thing that's nice. Which part of the brain was it that you were seeing all these changes occurring in? So we're looking in two parts of the brain. So one part of the brain is called the ventral striatum, and this is kind of deep in the centre of the brain. It's the pleasure centre, isn't it? It's certainly involved in pleasure. So it's one of the bits of the brain that seems to be very important in pleasure, yes. And the other part of the brain that we're interested in and we saw signals was, was in the midbrain, so very deep in the, in the brain. And this area contains neurons called dopamine neurons. And these neurons have been very particularly involved and implicated in reward and learning about good things. Um, and these neurons project widely around the brain and they might be broadcasting a signal telling other parts of the brain about how nice something is and helping the, the other parts of the brain to learn about that. So what implications does this have? Now you've been able to pinpoint these parts of the brain that are doing this. What implications does this have, obviously, for treating human diseases associated with things where people do things too much that are bad for them because they do them too much and they're addictive, for instance? Well, I think the more that we understand about how these parts of the brain work, the more we can start to understand about how can you start to treat uh, drug addiction and other sorts of diseases where there are bits of the brain are not functioning properly and not telling you about how rewarding things should be, like in depression, which we think is kind of a disorder in your ability to process uh, rewards and, and unpleasant stimuli. So the more that we understand about that, the, 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 better, the closer we are to developing treatments that could maybe target these bits of the brain uh, using, say, drugs that target specifically these parts of the brain or even looking at other kinds of behavioural therapies one could use. John, we're going to leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us and telling us about your experiment. You're very welcome. Have a, have a great day over there in California. Thanks a lot. Thank you. John O'Doherty, who is at the California Institute of Technology. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the naked scientists. Welcome back to the second half of the show. We want your calls, 08459 25 2000, because we're going to start talking to our special guests now. So we have Steve O'Reilly and we have Len Armand here, who are going to talk about, basically, why have I put on weight after porking out over Christmas? <laughs> and what can I do about it? Um, so, first of all, Steve, I mean, so why is it that you get some people who just seem to eat you know, chips and everything, and they're still skinny as rakes. And then I just have to look at chocolate and I become a porker. What's going on? Like everything in, in science, you have to uh, work out whether your premises are correct or not. And actually, I would say, Kat, that the evidence that, that what you've just said happens is really very poor. Um, when you actually take people who are predisposed to obesity and put them into s- fixed settings and watch what they eat and, and, and slim people, in general, obese people eat more than thin people. And, and, and although we all think that we have friends and colleagues who can eat like pigs and not put on weight, or, and we, actually, if you put people into control settings, it's very difficult to, to, to actually you know, to, to really prove that that, that that happens or at least happens on a regular basis. There's no doubt that there are some conditions, for instance, when your thyroid is overactive, when your metabolism is extremely stimulated, where you can eat a lot but lose, but lose weight. But under, under normal circumstances, the cause of obesity is eating that little bit more <clears throat> too much for your for your metabolic rate. Now that's not a blame issue. That's an issue that some people 
really are driven to eat rather more than than others. We've looked into that over the last ten years or more, looking at looking at children, for example, who've particularly prone to obesity at an early age, and and found many of them who have genetic defects, uh, really causing them to to, to fail to to notice fullness so they continue to eat when others have stopped stopped eating. So our particular interest really is in the genetic basis of appetite. So I I would go back to your initial question and say that that what you've suggested as a a common scenario isn't in fact that common and that's one of the great things about science is is, common sense doesn't often, sometimes it turns out not to be true. Steve, what do we now understand, uh, and you started to mention it vaguely, um, what do we now understand about how appetite is controlled both in the nervous system and in the, in the stomach? Well, I mean, firstly, we're beginning to know that it is controlled to some extent. For, for many years, it, really the overall attitude was that it, we were just uh, we were really at the, at the mercy of our exogenous environment and, and it wasn't really a controlled physiological process at all, and it's only in the last few years that we've begun to understand that there are signals that the body gives out to the brain that at least provides the brain with information about how much nutrients are being stored. And, and, and those signals are critical. In the absence of those signals, your brain is ravenously hungry. There's one particular signal called leptin, and if you don't have that, whether you're a mouse or a human, you are ravenously hungry all the time. Where does it come from? And it comes from fat cells. So the, the, the cells that you use to store your, your, your energy stores, if you like, are your fat cells. I mean, we all have fat cells. They're there for a reason. They're there to store any excess energy we have so that in times of starvation, we can then use it. And, uh, uh, and, and very cleverly, these fat cells produce this, this peptide hormone called, called leptin, which travels to the brain and really keeps the brain informed about how much stored nutrients we have, we have so on board. So how do the fat cells know how much of this leptin to produce? Because presumably the brain says, I can see X amount of leptin, this must mean that there's X amount of fat on the body, yep. therefore I feel hungry to a certain extent. So how do the... Is that how it works? It, it works that to a, par- a partial extent. It's not, it's not really... It's, it's a different sort of control mechanism. It's not, not quite as precise as you would like... To, as, 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 as we would like it to be. If it was very precise, we'd all be the same weight and we'd all be very readily... Uh, and control, we'd all readily control our weight. Leptin works best at the very, very low end. In other words, when you're very thin and the leptin levels become very low, your brain really says, you are starving. You must mm. go and find food. You must get lots and lots of food, and that dominates your life. It also switches off your reproduction. The lack, the lack of leptin explains, for example, why girls with anorexia nervosa are, are, don't have any periods. They switch off the, the, the hormones that control reproduction. So at that very low end, leptin works. The problem is, as, we get, as the leptin levels get higher, the brain kind of gets bored. It just says, okay, we know, you've got enough so, leptin. So, so it, does it doesn't mean, then, really if you get a bit too big... Yeah that you, you've essentially got too high levels of this hormone yeah. and the brain begins to just the ignore you, it a, goes deaf yeah, to the signal. It goes deaf, like. so so-called leptin resistance comes in and, and the so brain gets a little bit deaf to the signal. So yeah. if you take, I wouldn't say doing the person, but if you take an animal, because presumably mm. all mammals make this hormone, yeah. and you inject it artificially, does yeah. the animal become, as it think it's full mm. up and not eat, Absolutely. even though it's eating nothing? Absolutely, and you can, you can give it to a, a, a rat and you remove all body fat. It remains a perfectly fit and well... And, and well rat. And in fact, it has been given to normal human beings. And in normal human beings, they lose fat. They lose fat. What about in fat people? In fat people, because of the le- this leptin resistance, it's less effective. It, it probably isn't ineffective, but you really can't get enough of it in because the body is Ooh. so is so leptin resistant. So a lot of the research now is going to understand why people are leptin resistant, what's downstream of leptin in the brain, what's happening in the brain after leptin uh, acts. And that's where a lot of the excitement of current research is. 
Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, is how close really are we to finding the wonder pill that people can take? Or is, is that not really the answer? I wonder if you could ask, answer and then Len could say what he thinks. I don't think there will be a wonder pill, and, but I'm not as anti-pill as many people are, are with respect to obesity. I mean, for example, if we look back 50 years and talked about high blood pressure, everyone would have thought that high blood pressure was down to stress and lifestyle and not really a disease. And people were a bit uncomfortable about giving pills for something that was do it to do with stress. Now, of course, we treat high blood pressure extremely well. Stroke rates in this country have come down because of that. People are living longer because of very good antihypertensive therapy. And we sometimes have to use two, three, and even four drugs to treat people's hypertension, but doctors prescribe them and we pay for them as a nation. I think in 20 or 30 years' time, we'll probably have the same attitude towards obesity. And we'll see that people who are very obese are at serious risk and very, un- you know, and very uncomfortable often and, and, and immobile, and that we'll see nothing wrong with helping them with therapies which will go along with lifestyle and exercise and diet. What is the potential cost to the UK at the moment, as it stands, of the roughly one person in five who is obese? I'm not a health economist, but it's billions in terms of the impact of, of, of lost work days and, uh, and uh, the secondary illnesses associated with obesity, diabetes, ischemic heart disease, etc. It's an enormous cost. About £8.3 billion a year. Mm. Which, that's the Thank anticipated you. cost, isn't it? To the mm. NHS is, is currently £3 billion pounds per year. Mm. You are listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris, Dr Cat, and we're talking this evening with Len Armand and Steve O'Reilly from Loughborough University and Cambridge University, respectively. We're talking about diet, exercise, weight gain and metabolism. If you'd like to ask them a question, 08459 25 2000, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. We're here live across the BBC Eastern region until 7, and don't forget that in that kitchen in Lakenham, we have our experiment with Derek and Dave, Nathan and Michelle. They're whipping up cream. If you're having a go at it and you've found anything yet... Give us a call with your results. 08459 25 2000. First person through on the phones with the correct observation will win themselves a prize. Ken is in Norfolk. Good evening, Ken. Oh, hello. Oh, uh, your phone's quite noisy, Ken. Yeah. Oh, beg your pardon. Go on, then. What's, what's your question? Uh, is that OK? It, well, it's quite a big, <laughs> big, a big hum, but if, if we just ask, then we'll see what we can do about it. Right. Um, I've always been thin. I can eat and drink what I like, and I do not ever put weight on. Um, obviously, well, I think because what happened is that I'm now 66, um, just after the war, sweets were on ration. Mm. <laughs> You're right. Uh, I never eat sweets. I don't eat sweets now uh, because we couldn't afford them. I don't know whether... It, I like a lot of sugar in my tea, but other than that, I haven't got sweet tooth. Now, the point is, it, it, uh, my friends talk to me and they say, well, how do you keep so thin? I mean, I, I've never, ever m- moved my weight. OK, hang on a second, Ken. What I'm going to do, because the phone is quite noisy, I'm just going to yes. turn you down a little tiny bit while Steve answers the question, all right? Hang on. Yes. So that's Ken's question. So we'll come to that in just a second. I'd just like to flag up also, Steve, because you could sort of take this in at the same time. Linda Edwards is in Norwich, and she says, why is it that people tend to gain weight when they get towards middle age? Why is middle age a factor? And Robin Milton would like to know why some people do get fat and others don't. So I think they're all sort of one similar kind of question, which could lump into one. So what do you think? Sure, they're all all great, uh, great questions, and they really boil down to the same question, is what 
underlies the differences between human beings in their body weight trajectories throughout life. In other words, why do some people remain thin and why do some people become fat? And of course, obesity is terribly simple because it really is, there's only two sides to the equation. There's energy in, i.e. how much you eat, and energy out, how much you expend. And so really, we all kind of know the answer. It must be that one is greater than the other. The paradox is, it's terribly difficult to measure in any one individual throughout their life. To get it really right, to measure energy in and energy out. And, of course, you only need a tiny, tiny disturbance on a day-to-day basis. A half of a finger of Twix is, is enough, if, if, cumulative over a, if cumulative over weeks and months, is enough to put you off, over 30 years, is enough to put 20 kilograms onto you. So our ability as scientists to measure each individual. And, of course, the other thing about obesity is everyone has their own personal experience. Everyone knows then knows that he's been thin all his life and knows that he can stuff his, stuff his face. But, actually... What Len's subjective feeling of stuffing his face is may be very different from mine. I'm a big guy, and I bet I can pack away much more than he, than he wants to. So our relative amounts of what we think stuffing our faces means are very, very different. Now, my own bias, and not necessarily bias, but from our own research, would suggest that, to me, an underestimated factor is, is, is genetics. In other words... Body weights tend to run in families very strongly. I mean, up to about 80% of inter-individual differences may be genetic. And those genetic influences may affect the same parts of the brain that we talked about when we talked about leptin hitting, hitting the brain. And our research is really indicating quite strongly that it's variation, genetic variation in those parts of the brain that might control both how much you want to eat and, indeed, in some cases, how much you want to, uh, uh, to, to expend. Now, that's not a council of despair. If we understand those... If we understand those, we can perhaps manipulate them and help people. Now, Len, let's talk about one way in which you can lose weight very effectively, and that's exercise. What is the contribution of exercise, and to what extent can it really make a difference? Well, Steve has mentioned energy balance, and that's an important concept to get over. I think what is also allied in energy balance is the idea that people do more sitting than they actually realise. The average person does at least 19% sitting throughout a whole day. We also tend to sleep more at far weekends. And in response to the lady's question, I would say one of the reasons why people put on weight in middle age is from 35 onwards, you start to decline in terms of functional capacity. But what you also do is you tend to do less activity at weekends. You tend to sleep more than dur- at weekends than during the week. You also tend to do far more sitting, and that could add up to at least 17 kilograms over the time that Steve was talking about, maybe 20 years. So it's a very simple equation. It's absolutely right. Steve is right. Over 20 years, doing less activity at weekends will put on 17 kilograms in weight. That's why I've got an email here for you, Len. I've got an email here from David, who's in Washington, D.C., and he says... Uh, I have a health question for you. If someone works out a lot and is in great physical shape but eats foods which are very high in fat and cholesterol, in what condition is his or her heart likely to be? Does the working out negate the bad diet or does does it keep you looking good on the outside but on the inside you may have serious heart problems? What do you think? (laughs) The, The answer to that is quite difficult. It all depends exactly how much activity that person is doing because... If a person doing a lot of exercise, they need a lot more energy inside the energy balance equation again. The advantage of exercise is it does help to break down the fat, all right, and that's an important factor. But I would say as a common sense notion, if you're eating more fat and having more cholesterol, that is not good for you. So I would say reduce fat because that's high in energy, far more than carbohydrate. 
reduce that and reduce your cholesterol and that's only good for you. Um, well, some, some people like going to the gym. I'm a bit of a gym bunny. I like going on the treadmill, listening to my Walkman and stuff. But some people just hate the gym. I, what, what is the best kind of exercise to take? The, the, by far, the best thing and simplest is walking. We need to be walking at least 30 minutes every single day. Now, that just represents 2% of your day. That's all we're talking about. But as I mentioned earlier, you've got to sit for a minimum of 19%. Now, I have some patients who sit for five hours every evening. That's what's contributing to people's overweight. Well, can we put some figures on it then, Len? How many calories do you burn sitting watching the telly? Well, it's very difficult to actually say. I mean, if you want to lose two pounds in weight, you need to lose 700 kilograms in a week. Right. 700 so kilos a week. That's pretty effective. Yeah. yeah, per week. 700 right. kilos. Kilo so we're talking about 500 in terms of food each day and 500 in terms of exercise. Now, it's quite easy to lose 500 kilocalories in terms of food because I have an apple instead of the apple pie or don't have the ice cream or reduce your Twix bar. But it's more difficult in terms of exercise. So I would say you, you need to get 30 minutes of exercise in a day, but also you need to reduce your sitting behaviour. Mm. And that's an important factor in it. I mean, there's some little statistics we've got here about the calories you burn doing different types of exercise. And uh, apparently if you do for an hour, the average 10-stone person, you can burn 378 calories cycling for an hour, 580 calories running for an hour, 330 calories downhill skiing... Uh, 266 calories weight training, about 400 doing aerobics, yoga's only about 140, swimming's 460, golf's 160, and apparently having sex for an hour is about 360 <laughs> calories. I think it depends on how active your sex life is, though. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, also... that's an hour, not three minutes, Chris. <laughs> no, 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 don't speak for your own standards, Pat. <laughs> Touche. Uh, it's the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. Uh, we're here with you until seven. We're talking this evening with Professor Steve O'Reilly and uh, Professor Len Armand. We're talking about exercise, metabolism, weight gain, obesity and how it's all controlled and how it all fits together. If you'd like to get a question into the programme, 08459 25 2000 is our phone number or you can email me chris at nakedscientist.com. Very soon we'll be heading back to the kitchen in Lakenham. Derek and Dave are there with Nathan and Michelle finding out what happens when you whip up cream and you go beyond the thick stage what happens next and why we'll be catching up with them shortly to find out but on next week's show i'm going to tell you we're going to be going green because we'll be talking about the science of plants and the science of gardening and one of the crew that's going to be here with us next week to help us do it is uh, heather and richard from the wiggly wigglers give them a chance to, to <laughs> explain <laughs> you'll see anyway uh, they, they've dropped us this week's podcast pick because if you remember we asked for you to send in little science podcasts one and a half minutes of you talking about something sciencey well, they've sent us this week's one to flag up the fact they're coming next week. So let's find out what they're going to talk about. I'm Heather from Wiggly Wigglers. And I'm Richard from Wiggly Wigglers. And we are stripping off ready to go on the Naked Scientist next week. Get your socks off then, love. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to talk about, Rich? We're going to talk about composting. And we're going to talk about two specific composting techniques, worm composting and using effective microorganisms. OK. Worms are the most effective composters in the world. In fact... They can eat half their body weight in waste every single day. They are much maligned creatures. The greatest ever British scientist, in my opinion, studied worms for 35 years, I think, Charles Darwin. People often think about composting and they say, where's the science in composting? But in actual fact, there's a great deal of science in composting. So, we'll be on next week's show. Can't wait. No, we're looking forward to it, aren't we? Yeah, trousers off then, Rich. My pleasure. <laughs>
the Wiggly Wigglers will perish the thought. We're here on the programme next week, Sunday's Naked Scientist, talking about the science of plants and the science of gardening. Stripping down science. Okay, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat. We're here with you until seven. We've been talking this evening, of course, about the science of weight gain, buttling the bulge and just trying to shrink the waistline a little bit with Steve O'Reilly and Len Armand. Might be able to sneak in one quick question towards the end of the programme, but before then, we're going to head over to that kitchen. It's Nathan and Michelle are in Lakenham with Derek and Dave. They've been whipping up cream to find out what happens if you keep going beyond the stiff point. Let's find out. Derek, hi. Hello, Chris. Yes, we're back in Lakenham in Norfolk and uh, our helpers here, Nathan and Michelle, have been working very very hard indeed whisking and shaking double cream and i think they've done a really good job as well so so nathan firstly then how are you feeling oh that was well hurt because my arms ache a lot well we're very sorry about that but you did do a great job so tell us what did you see well at first there was just normal double cream but when we started that was going all thick like when we started shaking it so that's quite cool okay then and then michelle what have you seen in, in the bowl with the whisk when I started whisking it, it was all, like, liquidy, and then it went thick, and then it turned little like scrambled egg. Yeah, and so what colour is it there? Yellow. Okay. And, like, there's some white stuff that looks like milk in the bottom. Right then, so, yeah, we've got kind of a bowl with what looks like scrambled egg in it and some kind of milk that it's kind of swimming in, and, uh, and it's all gone thick in Nathan's uh, jar as well. So Dave, of course, the, uh, the other naked scientist here, is uh, ready with a wonderful explanation. So, Dave, what has been happening here? All right, start off with where does cream come from? Milk. Milk, yeah. It's like the top bit of the milk, which if you've got old-fashioned milk that came in milk bottles, you get cream at the top. And what milk is, is look, well, basically it's water with bits of fat in it. So, we can make, so here I've got a jar of water, and we're going to add a bit of fat, some sunflower oil. Okay? So if we start off with, what does that look like? So Dave has added some, some oil to a jar of water here. With a load of bubbles on yeah. Kind of bubbles of uh, oil on the top. Okay. Yeah. So if, Nathan, you'd like to shake that up really hard. Because Nathan's very good at shaking. That's right. Now, what does it look like? A little bit like milk. A bit like milk. That's because the, the fat has broken down into really tiny globules as he shook it. You've got lots of little tiny globules spread around the water, okay? And this is called emulsion. If you get lots of really tiny globules of one, one liquid and another one, it's called an emulsion. Okay, when you take cream, you take out lots of water. So actually, there's more fat than there is in water, but all the little globules of cream are still s- surrounded by water. So if we make another version of this... Okay, so Dave is pouring away our, our first little mixture of oil and water, and now he's got the jar and he's pouring a lot of oil into the jam jar... And a little bit of water. So there's lots more oil than water now, isn't there? Yeah. So now as you whip the cream, okay, because there's much more oil than there is water, you slowly start the big globules of fat to tend to join up together and they get slowly bigger and bigger. And so as, as they get bigger, it gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And that's why it got thicker earlier, remember, Nathan, when it's yeah. getting harder and harder to stir? Okay. Now, when you suddenly, all instead of getting small globules of fat inside water, you end up with globules of water inside fat. Okay, do you want to sh- shake this up and see what that so is? Nathan's going to have another shake. Okay, now what does that look like? Kind of like limey kind of stuff. 
It looks very similar. So instead of the cream, when we had little globules of fat in water, most of the water's escaped. We've got little tiny globules of water in fat, which is why butter is, feels much more fatty and slippery than cream does. So with making butter, we've kind of extracted the water, have we, through shaking it? Extracted most of the water and inverted the, the emulsion. I see. So it was mostly water, but now it's mostly fat. Yes. And that's what butter is. OK. Can you see what colour it is? Yes, yellow. Yellow. Should we try and see? Should we try and make it look a bit more like butter? You take some of this yellow gunk out. Do you want to take it out with your hand? And chuck it on some kitchen paper. That's right. And now oh. if you dry it out with a kitchen paper and squeeze all the water out of it. Oh. So Dave is now squeezing some of this kind of yellow gunk from the bowl through a piece of kitchen now, what does paper. That look like? Butter! It looks just like butter, doesn't it? Yeah. That's because it is. <laughs> can we try some, Dave? You can certainly try some. Oh, yeah. Anyone want to have a go? Yeah. Yeah, that tastes exactly like butter. This is how they've always used to make butter. Okay, in fact, how they still make butter. Okay, so of course, you at home are probably still wondering what has all of this fantastic information got to do with paint? Now then, before I go to Dave, I'm going to ask uh, Nathan and Michelle here. Michelle, um, have you heard of the word emulsion before? Yeah, um, it's like something that you put on the water, it's basically paint. Yeah, emulsion paint. Okay then, so there is basically a connection between emulsion and paint here, is that right? That's right. Now, if you're making paint for your walls, you could dissolve it in water, and that would be a nice, easy, clean thing to paint with. But what would be the problem with dissolving your paint in water? What would happen if it rained? It would drip and go all over our... It would all dissolve in the rain, wouldn't it? And that wouldn't be ideal for the side of your house. So what you want to do is you want the actual paint to be insoluble in water so it doesn't run off when it rains. You can do this by just using lots of oil, and that's what gloss paint is, and just dissolving the whole lot in oil. But the oil's actually quite unpleasant and poisonous and, and smelly and horrible. So what you, want, you want to use as little oil as possible and get the paint dissolved in that oil. So what they do is they dissolve the paint in oil and they make an emulsion of it by shaking it in water. And then when you paint this on, it just behaves like it was water-based, but actually once it dries, the, the oil dries and you get something which is waterproof. Okay, so you kind of get the best of both worlds, don't you? You've got the, the, the water, which will paint on nicely, but also the oil, which will resist rainfall. That's right. Okay, so then, Dave, it turns out that really the cream and paint have something in common. That's right, yeah, they're both emulsions. But I wouldn't paint with cream because it's just going to go rancid and horrible very quickly. Okay, so uh, listen at home, this is not an economical solution to painting your house. Okay, well, that's the end of our experiment in uh, Lakenham near Norwich, and we've had a wonderful time. Dave has as well, haven't you, Dave? I've loved it. And we're we're very happy to have had our two wonderful helpers as well, Michelle and Nathan. So thank you very much to you. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, that was great. Excellent. Well, thank you. And we will be back next time with some more science experiments from elsewhere in the east of England. So it's goodbye from Dave. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from our willing helpers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And uh, it's goodbye from me as well. So back to the studio. Thank you, Derek. Derek and Dave, who were there with Nathan Michelle in Lakenham in Norfolk. Now, next week, we're off to Abington in Northampton, where Henry and Joe will be finding out how ants lay down chemical signals, and they'll have a real live ant colony in their kitchen to do this and show how ants navigate between things. Massive thank you this evening to Professor Steve O'Reilly, to Professor Len Armand, who were our guests this evening, to Kat Arney, who helped to co-present tonight's programme. I'd also like to say thank you to our team here at BBC Radio Cambridgeshire, Petro Minch, Holly Barclay and Anna Lacey. Have a really nice evening, and we'll see you next week. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.